0: Welcome to the Graceful Confidence Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Debick, the founder of Life Coaching with Lauren, a female empowerment coach, an entrepreneur, empath, and a lover of the ego-friendly lifestyle. My mission is to help women take control of their lives by teaching them how to increase their confidence in an authentic and genuine way so they can achieve both personal and professional goals. I will share ways to increase your confidence, tips on how to integrate grace into your life, as well as stories and advice from other experts on how, as women, we can better empower ourselves and those around us. I will show you exactly how to use the power of confidence and grace to create an empowering and invigorating life that you are excited about waking up to every single day. Now, let's dive in. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Graceful Confidence podcast. Before we get any further, I would like to give a special shout out to my patrons, Wuzlos, Glenda, Britton, Lisa, and Barbie. Thank you so much for your continued support and encouragement of this creative project. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the Graceful Confidence podcast, check out the link in my bio or follow me for more information. Patrons get access to bonus episodes, Ask Me Anything opportunities, and more. I absolutely love what I do. I have the opportunity to get to speak to so many interesting, fascinating people who are doing wonderful things for our world, and this month's guest is no exception. One of the things that people are surprised to hear about me is that I consider myself an introvert and someone who is highly empathetic and highly sensitive. And for a long time, I felt like I was very different when it came to certain things. So being around large groups of people for an extended amount of time, uh, being places where there's loud noises, lights, a lot of activity really bothered me and I've had to kind of just learn to live with it and deal with it. And I've always wondered if other people felt the way that I did in these types of scenarios because it's not something that people really talk about. My mom recently introduced to me the concept of the highly sensitive person. She she read a book on it, she did some research on it, and most of those attributes of a highly sensitive person are things that I personally identify with. So when this guest became an option for me to speak to in an interview, I was really excited, not just to share the message of what being a highly sensitive person means and to share the awesome work that she's doing and how she is helping people get through some of these different things and learn to live with their sensitivity and how to use it as a superpower. But I also selfishly was really interested in it for myself because this is something that I have been struggling with and something that I have been trying to come to terms with and find out how to use for myself as well. So if there's anyone out there who feels a little bit different, who has been told their entire life that they're too sensitive and they need to toughen up, they need to get thicker skin, this episode is for you. I'm so excited to introduce Sarah Kessner. Sarah is a certified professional coach and a mother of a beautiful boy. She is a former actress with 20 years experience who is now passionate about supporting highly sensitive people navigate life's transitions with more ease and less anxiety. Growing up, Sarah saw her sensitivity as a problem and liability due to social norms. After a lot of inner work and healing, she wanted to help others get underneath the anxiety, fear, doubt, perfectionism, inner critic, and all the other ways we sabotage ourselves so we can hear the voice of inner guidance. In today's episode, Sarah is going to share with us how we can develop more self-trust and implement tools that can help us live a more courageous and empowered life while using our sensitivity. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Sarah, thank you so much for being here.
1: Lauren, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: So the first question is, what is a highly sensitive person?
1: Great question. So (laughs) the term highly sensitive person or HSP was coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron. She wrote a book that came out way back in 1996 called The Highly Sensitive Person, based on a lot of research that she did when she was in her PhD program. And um, essentially, what it means to be a highly sensitive person is that you are less tolerant of a lot of stimulus, right? That your tolerance for stimulus is smaller than someone who is less sensitive. And I like to think of sensitivity on a spectrum. And um, this man named Dr. Ploos came up with this metaphor that I find to be really useful. That is that there are dandelions in the world, there are tulips in the world, and there are orchids. And dandelions make up of about 30% of the population. And like uh, a dandelion, uh, dandelions can grow anywhere, right? They can uh, erupt out of a little crack in the sidewalk and thrive and do just fine, right? And so that group of people is our sort of least sensitive group, that they can thrive under any conditions. They're not so sensitive to their external environment. And then there's about 40% of the population that are tulips, right? And tulips need, you know, nice flower bed. They need an adequate amount of sun, an adequate amount of rain in order to thrive. And then there's about 30% of the population that are orchids, right? And orchids I don't know how many of you have ever taken care of an orchid, but they need just the right amount of sun, just the right amount of water, just the right nutrients, just the right humidity in order to thrive. But when they thrive,
2: they're absolutely beautiful, beautiful flowers. That is an amazing just description of it. And I know we didn't talk about this, prior to this conversation, but I am someone that identify as an HSP. And it's not something that I, that I broadcast, but I've never mm. heard it described in that way. And it makes so much sense. So that's a, that's a beautiful picture. What does that look like for like an individual? And mm-hmm. I know it's different for every single person, but I guess the question is, how does someone know if they're a highly sensitive person? How do they know if they're an orchid? I identify as a highly sensitive person as well.
1: Often people who are highly sensitive have been told, especially when they were children, but perhaps throughout their lives that they are too sensitive, right? Or that they need to toughen up. Often you're receiving messages either explicitly or implicitly that you are too much and or not enough in certain ways from a very young age. And so what that also might look like is that you have a strong imagination, that you have vivid dreams, that you perform poorly uh, when you're being observed, even when you're doing things that you're naturally good at. Part of being an HSP is that you're a deep processor. And so what that means is that you might learn a bit more slowly than other people, But once you learn something, you know it very deeply. You know it in your bones, right? And that also means is that you often are processing events. You're processing how you're feeling on a deeper level than a dandelion or a tulip would. Oftentimes, HSPs find alone time absolutely essential. And there's many HSPs who are extroverts. I'm sort of in the middle between being an extrovert and introvert. And there are many HSPs who identify as introverts. Regardless, HSPs need time alone to recharge their batteries. Something that I find interesting and cool about high sensitivity is that you're really aware of subtle changes in the environment, right? And so someone might get like a really subtle haircut, like just a trim, and you notice it. Or you notice when you walk into an office and a plant has been moved from one side of the room to the other, right? You're taking in external information and processing it on a a more deep and nuanced level than a, a dandelion or a tulip. Also, I think people who are highly sensitive, traditionally, when we lived in tribes, they were the ones who stood guard who were looking out on the horizon for possible danger, right? And so what that means now that we don't live in tribes is that our internal system is still primed to be constantly scanning the horizon for potential danger. And and so what that means is that we are more sensitive, of course, And we also are more prone to anxiety than uh, a typical
2: dandelion or tulip. And that's a lot of the work that you do with clients, correct, is working with HSPs, helping them discover their gifts and helping them realize that they are strengths that, that we have within us. What is that process like and why do you think it's so difficult sometimes for HSPs in today's world? Well, I would say that
1: the dominant culture is not very supportive of highly sensitive people. And I actually do think that that is changing. Um, And I think that the pandemic, um, as terrible as it's been for so many people, and I I don't want to be Pollyanna about it in any way, but I do think that It has accelerated perhaps some positive changes in particular for HSPs in terms of working from home, in terms of listening to your natural rhythm more, in terms of being able to slow down, in terms of having a great excuse to say no to all those social (laughs) events. Our society is not designed for HSPs, but I do believe that it is changing over time. And that is one of the challenges for highly sensitive people to accept that they're not flawed, that there is nothing wrong with them, right? I I wouldn't, I'm not saying that highly sensitive people are God's gift to the universe, right? But it is, it's a neutral trait, right? And there are beautiful things about the trait and there are drawbacks to the trait, just like any person walking on earth, right? But we tend to, in our culture, probably glorify the dandelions much more than the orchids. it's like, it's just a different flower.
2: You mentioned that there are some beautiful traits and some drawbacks to the trait. What are some of those beautiful Mm. attributes of, of the orchid?
1: So we are more in tune with the pain of the world But we are also more in tune with the joy of the world. And when we allow ourselves to feel the pain, we open ourselves up to also feeling the deep joy. And I think that that is one of the most beautiful aspects of being a highly sensitive person. Um, Highly sensitive people are deeply creative and they're. Uh, phenomenal listeners. They're incredibly empathic. They make wonderful teachers and guides and advisors because of how thoughtful and conscientious
2: they are. How about some of the drawbacks? I know you mentioned anxiety. Mm-hmm. What Are there any other drawbacks?
1: Sure. I mean, so the flip side of conscientiousness is perfectionism. And so many highly sensitive people, because they are so conscientious, that conscientiousness can go into overdrive and lean towards perfectionism, right, which, you know, I think that highly sensitive people are really uh, wonderful employees usually, but oftentimes at their own, at their own expense of their own um, mental well-being, right, that their perfectionism just can really zap your sense of happiness, your sense of joy, your sense of pleasure. Um, So that is definitely a drawback to being a highly sensitive person. You know, of course, our anxiety can get in the way. Uh, It's another thing that steals our joy, right? This sense of constantly having to be on alert, constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop or getting into a place where we're dress rehearsing tragedy, right? That is another way that our high sensitivity, you know, isn't so helpful.
2: Can we talk about that piece for, Mm. for a moment? How do you help clients work through that piece? So holding on to those beautiful attributes, holding on to those strengths, but then working through that anxiety and and being Mm -hmm. able to handle that a little more level-headed, if you will.
1: Yeah. So um, there's a few modalities I use. One of the modalities that I find to be most useful is internal family systems or IFS, which was developed by this man named Dr. Richard Schwartz. And um, what he talks about in his work is that we are made up of many different parts, OK? And these parts that we're made up of are um, protectors, right? And a protector might be um, an inner critic, a perfectionist, a taskmaster, right? some kind of manager. right? And there, then there's also um, other parts known as firefighters which are reactive protective parts. And they're the parts that maybe overeat, for example, or drink too much or, right? These are other protective parts that are protecting what is underneath, which which he calls exiles. So exiles are the parts of ourselves that we have hidden away, right? That we've disowned. And often they're very, very young parts of ourselves. And through IFS we get to know these parts and we redefine our relationship with them. Right? So often we think of our perfectionist or our inner critic as being our enemy. Right? And so we try to push it away and that actually just amplifies that part of us and makes it stronger. So a paradigm shift can happen when we see this part as not our enemy, but as a powerful protector of us. And we can understand and appreciate that even if it's been acting in ways that are causing us suffering and which aren't so helpful, it's been working really, really, really hard to protect us. And so if we can accept that part and befriend it and get to know it better, it can begin to relax and show us the exile, right? Show us to the part that it's been protecting. And that's really where a lot of deep healing and transformation can occur. And then another part to this is this aspect of self that is a part of internal family systems and it's self with a capital S. And what self means is essentially that part of us that is living underneath the voices of fear and anxiety, right? Lives underneath our parts sort of the seat of consciousness, right? And you could refer to it in many different ways, right? So there's different modalities that sort of use a different term for what I essentially think they're all talking about self. You might call it future self, highest self, inner mentor, loving parent, right? We're all talking about the same thing. It is that seat of self. The part of us that is connected um, to the divine within us, to our essence, right? And this is a part of every human. Every human has access to this. No matter if you've experienced trauma in your life, right? You can access this part of
2: yourself. How do you encourage people to access that part of themselves? Mm
1: I introduce it usually through guided meditation in the beginning of my work with clients. And um, I always encourage after this meditation for them to practice connecting with this part, right? It's like we've opened the door, you've gotten in touch with this part, and now we've got to keep the door open, right? And so often I will encourage a journaling assignment just a daily check-in and uh, what that daily check-in might consist of is just writing down and it doesn't have to be long what does my self with a capital s want me to know in this moment so accessing self is sort of like working out a muscle so the more you access it the easier it is for you to lift that weight, right? And the stronger that it gets, the
2: more self you have access to. That's amazing. There's so much power in meditation and journaling and to hear how it can be combined with with this type of practice, with discovering those different parts of ourselves is just phenomenal. So that's very, very important work that you're doing. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And um, yeah, another aspect of it is getting to know these different parts. Right. And then the self and the protector part or even exile part can then get into a dialogue with self with a capital S. That's fascinating.
2: How did you discover that you were a highly sensitive person?
1: Yeah. Long and Winding Road. Um, That song is like, I was told constantly when I was a child that I needed to stop crying, that I was too sensitive. I was told that by mainly teachers, by peers, um, somewhat by, by, uh, by parents and people um, within my family. And it's not about blaming them, like, I realize that everyone is doing the best they can. It's just, you know, that's the culture that we live in. And I was going through a period of time in my late 20s, and I had recently been through a bad breakup um, and was feeling very confused and overwhelmed in terms of my professional life, what I wanted to do, and in terms of my personal life. And I had been believing for, you know, 20 something years that there was something wrong with me, that I was broken in some way, that I was flawed, different, and that, you know, it was, I was unfixable, right? That there was just something deeply wrong with me. And the beauty of that is that it led me, of course, to going to therapy. And it led me, of course, to a lot of inner work. And I can't remember how I discovered the book, but I uh, did discover the book, The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. Elaine Aaron. And reading it, it was just like light bulbs kept going off for me. I was like,
2: oh my God,
1: wait a minute. There's, there's a word for what I am Right. And it was so freeing um, and very affirming. All of a sudden, I didn't feel alone any longer. I feel like before that, you know, I was really trying. I mean, I was really trying to show up for myself, I was really trying to heal. But that was a real turning point of me understanding oh, I'm wired slightly differently. And then you know, a slow journey of me getting resource and getting in touch with finally the right people who could understand my temperament, right? And I'm so grateful for those uh, counselors and coaches and mentors who, who
2: have helped me along my journey. You mentioned the the inner work aspect, and I would imagine with inner work comes self compassion into this mm. this equation of the HSP. How, yes. how does self-compassion play a role into all of this? I think that self-compassion is really at the core,
1: that really we cannot change anything until we accept it, right? Which is part of the reason why reading The Highly Sensitive Person was so life-changing for me, right? Because I no longer, I could now accept myself, it gave me permission to accept myself. And so once we accept ourselves, then we can actually work on things, right? Pema Chodron, who's a pretty famous Buddhist American monk, says, the problem is that the desire to change is fundamentally a form of aggression towards yourself. The other problem is that our hang-ups, unfortunately or fortunately, contain our wealth. Our neuroses and our wisdom are made out of the same material. If you throw out your neuroses, you also throw out your wisdom. Wow. I love that because when we can soften towards ourselves, Our anxiety, our fears, our inner critics, our perfectionism, all of that softens as opposed to, I'm just, I'm working at my perfectionism so hard and I don't, I don't know why it's not changing. It's like, um, well, (laughs) maybe it's not shifting because you're approaching it with the same mentality (laughs) with your perfectionist, right? You're trying to be perfectly imperfect, right? I think it's Albert Einstein who says that we can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created it. So if our inner critic, our perfectionist, our ego, our taskmaster, whatever it is that is the problem, right? If we are going at it from this place of aggression from this place of you need to change and you need to fix yourself we're just entrenching
2: these parts more deeply so how would someone soften that that relationship between those parts of themselves you mentioned we have to accept ourselves that can be hard sometimes how do you recommend people do that (laughs) yeah So,
1: I think often we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never tolerate other people to talk to us. And so, what can be helpful is one, I think we have to recognize how we're speaking to ourselves. So many of us are just speaking to ourselves so unkindly and are not even aware that we're doing that, right? So, first of all, is Unfusing ourselves, if that's a word, from this voice, right? Recognizing that it is not us, it is not who we are, it is not the totality of who we are, it is just a part of who we are. Recognizing that it is a protector,
2: right?
1: That it is protecting ourselves from a small, wounded part of ourselves. And then practically, an exercise that your listeners could do would be to write down what would they say to a friend who is in a similar situation or who is telling themselves a similar story. And then what can be helpful is to write it down and to go away from it, go take a walk and then come back to it and read it to yourself. and and take it in, and notice, right, that, hmm, maybe there's some softening that's happening here, and also to recognize that this is the journey of a lifetime, that there is no there, there, right, that you're going to fall back into old habits, you're going to move forward. And you're going to be like, Oh, I've got this. Oh, I'm doing great. Look at me. I'm like, I'm rocking at life. And then, you know, you'll hit a speed bump and you'll be like, Oh my God, no, I thought I had this figured out. Right. And that's just all a part of it. I believe that we're sent here to learn some lessons and we're essentially learning the same lessons over and over and over again on a deeper and deeper level.
2: I would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> um, going back to one of the beautiful attributes of orchids, you mentioned creativity. Mm. How do HSPs tend to be more creative than, than some of their counterparts?
1: That's a good question. So um, I believe that everyone has the ability to be creative, right? That creativity isn't just reserved for the few for the mm-hmm. ones who were told by their art teacher in elementary school that they drew the lion the best, right? Right. Creativity is for everyone. What I do think that um, highly sensitive people, if they have an advantage with creativity, is that they are generally more in tune with their inner life, with their dreams, uh, with their feelings. If they're functioning well, they're honoring their rhythm, um, which makes space for more creativity naturally to bubble up in their lives.
2: What do you mean by honoring their rhythm?
1: From a very young age, we are taught to ignore our internal rhythm, right? Come on, gotta get up, gotta get ready for school, gotta eat your breakfast, come on, get on your hat, get on your gloves. Go to school, all right, get in the car, all right. We're in the car, okay, we're going, get out of the car, okay, go to the classroom, okay, from 9 to 9:30, we're going outside to do this and blah, blah 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 blah, right? And it just goes on and on. Right. So we are taught, you know, implicitly, explicitly, not to listen to how we want to move through the world. And part of Reconnecting to self is learning to tune into what is my natural rhythm? What is the next thing, the next loving action that I want to take? And I'm not talking about some sort of elaborate self care. I'm talking about, wow, I need to go to the bathroom, (laughs) right? Or I need a drink of water that's all a part of honoring your rhythm or yeah no i know tonight i said i was going to go watch a movie with my friend but i really need to just get to bed early tonight right that's honoring your natural rhythm and it's not a black and white thing right there's all, always going to be times where we ignore what our internal voices is, is saying and go do the thing anyway. But if we can learn to tune into our rhythm more, that's going to give us more access to self, more access to creativity.
2: How do you recommend people tune into that rhythm? If they've never even thought about Mm -hmm. about this a day in their lives, what would that first step be?
1: So it can be helpful when you're first trying to just even listen at all to your body and to your spirit to set some timers during the day. Like it might be once an hour, right? And when that timer goes off, it's a check-in and you might close your eyes, take a few breaths and just ask yourself, what am I needing in this moment, right? Could be, just need to take a nice stretch, right? <sighs> or stand up from my, my seat at work and just take a lap around the building right? or go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, or have a snack, right? doesn't have to be anything revolutionary. Right? And through that practice of tuning in, you begin to be more aware of what your
2: body is telling you about what you need. I love the idea of the timers. I, even me personally, there will be days where the day goes by and I, I haven't eaten. I haven't mm-hmm. drank as much water as I, I know I need to. And I think I'm someone who is somewhat tuned in. So, <laughs> Like I have work I need to do. So I love the the, the timer idea. But going back to just the way our society and cultures is, is set up, it is not necessarily set up with those things in mind. I mean, you you use the perfect example from a young age. It's get up, go, this is what we're doing, and work through the lunch, work through the night, be productive. So that's very insightful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you. We, we have some work to do. But that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> One of the questions that that I thought of is you mentioned that highly sensitive people tend to be the ones who can see things, see the danger that's coming. And that can be used in, I would imagine, a variety of ways. Obviously, personal safety, but also in business or in the workplace, you may be able to identify potential risks. Mm -hmm. How would you encourage someone who might be highly sensitive to be able to vocalize those things, though? Uh, That's a great question.
1: Highly sensitive people tend to do well in roles where they're advisors in some sense, right? Rather than in roles where like they're salespeople or like everything's on it, like time crunch, right? Heavy duty kind of time is of the essence kind of roles. It takes courage to speak up. And it's a muscle. It's really, I think, the muscle of self-trust that you um, are needing to exercise. And so what I would encourage is to start small with exercising that muscle of self-trust. What that might look like is instead of when you go to the grocery store, asking your husband or your wife, what apple should we get? Like, I really don't know. Right. Should we get the honey crisp or should we get the fuji? Right. To practice self-trust, right? Mm, I feel like the Fuji today. Let's get the Fuji, right? To start that small, right? We need, we need to start small in order for a habit to be established. Right. I think James Clear says a habit needs to be established before it can be perfected. And so to look at ways where you might outsource what your own inner guidance is telling you and look for ways where you can begin to exercise that muscle of self trust. And then, you know, there are times where we know we really need to speak up and it's scary but we just need to do it and and we know you know on a certain level we're connected enough to self to know that we're ready and in those cases it can be really helpful if at all possible to write down what we want to say beforehand right to take the time away to reflect so that we're clear So that we feel grounded, so that we feel connected, as connected as we can to self energy, and then to come in to the room as ready as we can be, knowing that it's probably going to still feel uncomfortable, but as ready
2: as we can be to share what needs to be shared. Those are great tips, tips that I am going to take to heart, (laughs) actually, myself (laughs) and start using. Sarah. What what do you enjoy most about what you do?
1: It's incredibly fulfilling to me when clients are able to implement change in their lives and how small incremental changes can really snowball into something that's quite profound for them. I love it when uh, a client is says perhaps i was going to email you about what i was what i should do about something and then i took a moment and i reflected and i practiced self-trust and i figured it out like that is huge right i think one of the biggest things that i love about coaching is um that it helps me to feel more connected with others and that I learn as a coach so much from my clients as much as, if not more, than what they learn from me. It really is a relationship where I am giving, yes, but I'm also receiving so much. And for that, I am just incredibly, incredibly grateful.
2: If someone wanted to learn more about you or potentially find out more to to work with you, where could they find you?
1: Yeah. So they could find me at my website, of course, www.sarahkessner.com or my Instagram handle Sarah Kessner coach and it's S-A-R-A-H-K-O-E-S-
2: T N E R. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your your grace. I know the mantra I'm going to take away with me today that I just made up is start with the apples. Like start small, yes. start with the apples and let
1: it grow from there. So, yes. thank you so much. You're so welcome. Yes, I love that. Start small. Absolutely. We have to start small otherwise it's not sustainable. Small change is what's sustainable.